This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the writer Philip Hoare about his new and marvelous book, Albert and the Whale, Albrecht Durer and How Art Imagines Our World. Your book, Philip, is a cabinet of wonders, a picking up of shells beside the great and unexplored ocean of truth. You search in that ocean for the genius of the 16th century German artist, Albrecht Durer. Ask why his art was made and how, 500 years later, it composes a still living world of the imagination. The book is a joy to read, Philip, but it doesn't lend itself to easy summary or introduction. So perhaps you can begin with a plain statement of some of the facts. Where and when was Dürer born, how long he lived in flesh and bone, some notion of the extent of his achievement as a painter of pictures, a printer of books, and a maker of worlds. Well, thank you very much, Lewis. And you you actually sum it up very nicely, the book there. Um, It is a strange uh, expedition I went on to find this man who is so vivid 500 years after he lived. I'm kind of astonished that I could even get close to depicting who or what he was. He was born in Nuremberg in 1471. His father was a goldsmith who had probably trained as an artist as well in the Netherlands. Dürer grew up in his father's workshop as a, an apprentice there, but then he quickly realised he wanted to be what we call a fine artist because that notion didn't exist at that time. He, he, he joined a, a, another artist studio, trained as an artist, and began this extraordinary career in which he recorded not only the human life around him, but the natural world around him, which is really what I find most interesting and what we, the modern viewer of his work, find so interesting. So we'll probably talk about that later, but really I suppose the key thing about Dürer to to know is, is that he was caught between two periods. He was born in the medieval world and he died in the modern world. He's almost like this Janus figure looking at both directions at the same time. And what he does, remarkably, and for the first time, as you intimate in your introduction, he prints his own work. So he's using this new technology. He's in a city which is the Silicon Valley of its day. Nuremberg is a great technological centre. It's a centre of trade and export and import, of innovation. And it's here that the printing press is in its full sway. There are 100 printing presses in the city. It's the first place that Columbus's account of the New World are published, the first place that Marco Polo's accounts of the Eastern World are published. So Dürer is at the heart of this technological revolution. Printing is far more influential than the internet, far more influential. Martin Luther says he is scared of what the effect on humanity will be of the release of information, of the release of images. 
And it's Dürer's extraordinary talent that he takes up that challenge and he turns the mechanics of printing into absolute fine art. He creates woodcuts of the apocalypse. This is his first great success. He, he imagines the apocalypse, the, the book of revelations, as a kind of trailer for a CGI movie, a science fiction movie. He depicts those demons and devils and apocalyptic scenes, the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding roughshod across the terrain of this future devastation. But he does it so vividly that his audience think it's about to happen. And of course, they're coming up to the year 1500. The idea of, of imminent Armageddon is very much in people's minds. But what he also does, and Erasmus said this in a remarkable way, he says, Dürer does in black and white what, only, what other artists can only do in colour. So he creates a kind of animated version of reality. And then he goes one step further because he moves into engraving in which he achieves much finer detail than the woodcut. The woodcut is almost cartoonish compared to the three-dimensional, almost four-dimensional hyper-reality of the engravings that he created. And I hope we will get to talk about this in detail later, but his famous engravings, Melancholia One, um, The Night, The Death and the Devil and St. Jerome form this triptych of absolute astonishing technological achievement. Even now, artists are unable to explain how Dürer was able to produce so much detail in every square inch of those engravings. He becomes famous and successful fairly, fairly early in his life. I mean, his woodcuts of the, the apocalypse and of, of most famously of Adam and Eve are replicated and, and uh, distributed throughout Europe. Of course, you've put your finger on it. Uh, art, this art is not only available to merchant princes and aristocrats and emperors. The middle classes, the new middle classes can buy these images and paste them up on their walls. They paste them on their wardrobes. Um, Dürer has franchises. He has his agents selling his art all across Europe. They reach Norway, they reach England, they reach Hungary, uh, they reach Italy. Some people colour them in. Um, for like, you know, we do now, there's this great craze for colouring in. So, yes, yeah, so th th this, is, this is why he is so important. But there's an additional factor here, which is the way he presents himself as an artist. And that is something that we see so vividly in the self-portraits he makes of himself. And there are a sequence of three portraits in oil, which are beyond doubt revolutionary for the time. Because it wasn't in an artist's interests to spend six months painting a portrait of himself, creating an image which is unsellable. Who, who wants to buy a portrait of, a, of an artist? You commission an artist if you're a, a prince or an emperor, but you don't, you don't want a picture of a, an artist. So it seems like an outrageous act of vanity, of narcissism. But what he does, he creates himself as a fine artist, not an artisan. 
So when you see this sequence of pictures, and it starts with Albert Durer as a young man with this extraordinarily extravagant get-up. He's wearing a hat that looks like a red jellyfish. His shirt is off his shoulders in a very outrageous, flagrant way. He's a kind of grungy teenager moving towards being a kind of prince. And then in the second image, which he paints when he returns from his first trip to Italy, to Venice, and he's suddenly been refined by the Italian Renaissance. So he's dressed in black and white. He might be dressed by Armani or Versace. He is austere. He has learnt to dance. He has learnt to fence. He has learnt, most crucially, the secret art of perspective. And we, what we really notice about this second portrait from Italy, it's now in the Prada Museum in Madrid, is the way it focuses on his hands. And in the portrait, his hands are gloved. What he's telling us is he is no artisan. These are the precious hands of a fine artist. You're, all eyes are drawn to these hands. These are the hands that God gave me, he's saying, and this is the mechanism by which I achieve my art. And then in the third and final major self-portrait, he turns himself to face us. The, the two other portraits have been side on, sort of looking at us sideways. Suddenly he turns bang, straight in front of us. His long, oiled, curly hair. His friends joke that his boy has to spend hours curling and oiling his hair every morning. It streams from his head. He looks like some kind of Viking, indeed. He is of Hungarian origins. He probably did have Viking genes in him. But he makes himself look like Christ. And it's no coincidence that he has created this identity for himself using a monogram. The A with a little D at the bottom of the A. It's Anno Domini. It's Albert Dürer. He almost is the Messiah. It's it's probably the most startling thing. Of course, he's saying that he is taking on a kind of imitation of Christ. But we now look at it as pretty much the most outrageous image of an artist to date, to that date, anyhow. And he painted, uh, all right, he, he was born in 1471 and in Nuremberg. And, and he, he uh, by 1500, he's already... Famous, world known. I mean, when does he make these portraits of himself? How old is he? So he's the first self-portrait that we have um, uh, oil in oil. He is twenty-two. The, the 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 last one, the one of him as Christ, is he's twenty-eight. And of course, twenty-eight is the peak of one's age uh, at that point. Uh, that's considered the peak of your life. Your most active part of your life <laughs> things are different now when did when did uh, Dürer die he died in 1528 in Nuremberg where he was born all right and by that time he was the most famous artist of the northern renaissance talk about some of his i mean what runs parallel through your book your book uh, you're looking at various works uh, of Durer, but your own encounter with Durer go goes over a large part of your own life so that you 
are looking. I mean, you approach Durer the way uh, I, I, I approach, let's say, the music of Bach or the poetry of Shakespeare. I mean, it's just a magnificent wonder. <laughs> I, so talk a little bit about your own in, encounter with, with Durer. Thank you so much, Lewis. Actually, my, my first real encounter, I mean, like so many people, I think Durer is there in the background. Uh, anyone who knows anything about art is going to know Durer's work. It's, it, it's, it's, it's very prevalent. Um, he creates these iconic images like the clasped hands of the praying apostle. You'll see that re- reproduced in so many Christian churches. Um, the rhinoceros, the armoured beast, the hare with the ears. So I kind of knew about Jura, but it was actually in the beginning of the, this century. Around 2005, I was in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and it was a snowy, cold day, and I'd retreated to the, to the museum to get warm, basically. And I walked into this white room, and there was these images, and they were Jura's woodcuts of the apocalypse, but also some of the engravings. And I was... I thought these images had just been run off the office photocopier. They looked so new, so modern. And that was really what set me on that journey to engage with him, to try and discover how a, pers- how a person from 500 years ago could affect us so deeply, even now. Dura is almost unique as an artist, as from the moment he uh, became famous, he has never not been famous. So he's never had this dip or this lull in his in his celebrity. Um, and for me at that time, a, a, a lot of my writing it has recently been about the sea. Dura had a very fascinating relationship with the sea, but he had a very particular uh, interest in the sea, which drew me because... I have a very great interest in whales and whaling, and, and I spent I spend a lot of time on Cape Cod um, watching whales. And at that point, uh, I knew that Jura had attempted to see a stranded whale on the coast of Zeeland in the Netherlands. And just to give a bit of sort of backstory here, this is the year 1520. Jura is very famous now. It's 500 years ago. He's very, very famous. He has to leave Nuremberg in the summer of 1520. And the story has always been that he was going to seek a pension from the new Holy Roman Emperor, his former uh, patron, Emperor Maximilian I, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, had died and his successor, his nephew Charles, is about to be crowned in Arkham in the Low Countries. And the story is that Jury is coming to... Uh, lobby the new emperor for a new pension and he does rely on this imperial pension as a a steady income but what in fact i discovered was that in the july of 1520 an emergency civic administration had been placed on nuremberg because a virulent uh, wave of the plague had hit the city and everyone who could afford to was leaving the city before this lockdown happened so Jura, along with the merchant princes that he knew, his patrons, uh, other very wealthy people, uh, escaped the city, much as so many people did in the recent lockdowns. And he moves to the, low, to the low countries, to the coast, to the healthy sea air of Antwerp. And while he's there with his mates, who are very wealthy people, and they're drinking and gambling and whiling away their time, Jura hears 
that a whale has been stranded on the coast of Zealand. And Zealand is this strange, fractured, half land, half sea zone, which is a, a nebulous place, um, uh, an, an intimidating place in many ways. So he charters a boat and they sail off to one of the islands in Zealand in search of this whale. A terrific storm breaks out. It's a scene from Shakespeare's Tempest. And their ship is blown by an onshore wind onto the quayside where they're trying to dock, smashes against shore. Half the people on board get off, but then the ship pulls back again. And it seems as though Jura, the greatest artist of their time, is about to drown. This is really what they think is going to happen. But Jura, in a kind of heroic way, uh, almost mythic way, takes control of the ship and manages to to get it back to back to the shore. But of course, the storm that brought such terror to the ship is also washed the whale away. So for Jura, this is this is a great blow because he was hoping that the whale was going to produce a new outstanding image for him. He was already famous for this image of the rhinoceros. Now, the rhinoceros that Dura drew will be familiar to so many people. You see it on labels of bottles of wine. You see it on posters. It's, it's, it's a ubiquitous image because when Dura drew it in 1515 and created this woodcut of it, it was as though someone had imagined a dinosaur. He'd never actually seen a rhinoceros. He was receiving uh, reports of a rhinoceros that had been sent from India to Lisbon as a gift to Manuel I of Portugal. And there were German commercial agents in Lisbon who were sending images of the so just sketches and descriptions of this animal back to Nuremberg and Dura saw those and created this was this extraordinary notion of his, his his imagination. He created a rhinoceros which he'd never seen, which was more rhinoceros than any rhinoceros that had been drawn certainly to that date and, and probably even up to about a hundred years ago. Uh, for about four hundred years this was how we saw rhinoceroses. And what he created was this fantastical image that was a kind of embroidery of of the rhinoceros. It, it has all these craters and pits and plates. It looks like an armoured tank and stuck in its back as a narwhal tusk, as if he didn't think the one horn was good enough. He had to give it an extra horn. So this is the fantastical image that Dura created. And this is what I imagine, this is what drew me on in the book, was what if Dura had drawn the whale? Would we have seen the whale differently for the rest of artistic history? Uh, in Moby Dick, Hammer Melville says, and he's writing in 1850, he says, no one has ever drawn a whale accurately. No one has ever depicted the vast Leviathan in his true majesty. Well, what if Jura had done that? Would we have seen whales differently? I even wondered if we might have had a different relationship to the whale, if we would have perhaps not persecuted them to near extinction uh, as Melville writes in Moby Dick and so this idea of what Dura could do with things which weren't uh, ostensibly commercial images so he he created a new way of seeing the natural world that I think that is possibly his most important aspect to us now uh, uh, as viewers from the 21st century the the other thing that runs through your book is 
other people's seeing in 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 Durer. I mean, you, Auden, Panofsky, um, the way that your book is composed, it's kind of a storehouse of human consciousness coming from all different angles and and uh, moments in time. It's what people are seeing in Durer in the 1920s and what they're seeing in Durer in the 1680s, what you're seeing, because you go to look at drawings and paintings of Durer all over Europe. And, and that's what's so good about your book is, is, is the intersection of, of consciousness. I mean, you know, you're thinking about Melville on the whale and the same time you're thinking about Durer and what he might have done with the whale. And you connect Durer with Leonardo, you connect him with all kinds of, of people. And talk about Durer drawing of dogs yeah. and, of, and of trees. Yeah, but you, you, you sum it up really well. So I try to almost channel him in a seance. <laughs> it's kind of crazy because, but... The great eco-philosopher Timothy Morton said, all art is from the future. Art is our way of travelling in time. When we are looking at art, we are experiencing exactly, experiencing exactly what that artist created that moment, but also what his audience saw at that moment. So art enables us to move in time and space. So vivid is the, is the aesthetic that Dura created that you have in the 1920s, Marianne Moore, a young woman living in Greenwich Village, goes to the Met Museum in 1928, which is the 400th anniversary of Dura's death. She walks into the Met and sees an exhibition of Dura's images, the same way as I did in 2005. She falls in love with Dura, physically falls in love with her. She writes of his magnificence in apparel. She writes about his rhinoceros, about the animals that he, he creates. But she brings Dura to 20th century New York. And so she writes a poem in which she imagines his whales stranded on the coast of Brooklyn. And she's looking at them from her apartment window. It's almost as though she partners with Dura, that she brings him into modernism or that almost that modernism was predicted by Dura himself. Dura was always a visionary. He was looking towards a golden age of art. So at the same time as Marion Moore is doing that, her great fan, W.H. Auden, is enlisting in the war. He goes to Nuremberg in 1944, uh, 1944, drives there in a jeep, arrives in bombed out Nuremberg. I mean, 90% of Nuremberg has been reduced to rubble. But there, standing proud out of the rubble, almost the only thing that seems to have survived is the statue of Dura. And there's this wonderful photograph of Auden in his Jeep, looking at the camera with Dura hovering in the background. And at the same time, you've got Thomas Mann, who is at that moment in Los Angeles, having fled Nazi Europe, Nazi Germany, 
taken shelter firstly in Princeton. He, uh, he, he, he lectured in Princeton, where he knew Ernest Erwin um, Panofsky, who was Dürer's modern biographer. But then man moves to Los Angeles. He, 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 he's getting as far away from the apocalypse, the true apocalypse that is being wrought in Europe to write about it in the same way as that Melville got far away from the ocean. He got to went to the middle of Western Mass to write about the ocean and the whale. So Thomas Mann ends up in L.A. writing this amazing book, Dr. Faustus, in which Dürer, rather like as with Mary Moore, Dürer becomes a modern figure. He becomes an avant-garde composer like Schoenberg, who physically turns into Jura at one point in the book. So don't be a spoiler alert, but this book is an extraordinary way of Thomas Mann trying to reclaim Jura as a person, as an artist, because crucially what's happened at this point in Jura's career, his posthumous career, Jura has become a new icon for a bitter, wicked, terrible creed of the fascists. And the leader of the fascists, who I never like to name in the same sentence as I name Albrecht Dürer, proclaims Dürer the most German of German artists, completely ignoring the fact that he was Hungarian in descent and the fact that one of his most portraits portrays himself as a Jew. Now, what man tries to do in his art, a man is trying to reclaim art from this chaos and he uses Dürer, the constancy, the endurance of Dürer, and that's that's a pun intended, the endurance of Dürer, as a way of saying, no, you're not going to win. Art can see through that perversion. And so you end up with this person. It's almost as though Dürer is, is a kind of science fiction figure, a kind of zelig. He pops up every now and again throughout history to say art is important, the human spirit is important, and it will not be perverted. Hermann Goering, if I remember, appropriated night, death, and the devil as his own personal motto. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's pretty hideous what happened. Um, Yeah. Dürer's works were stolen from museums and some disappeared entirely. So, um, yeah. Talk about the, your own, uh, you go to Nuremberg, do you not? To see, what do you go to Nuremberg to, to see of Dürer and when do you go? So I went there in 2019 on the 21st of May because that was Albert Dürer's birthday. It's also the eve of my birthday. My birthday is on the 22nd of May. And I went to Nuremberg, not really knowing what to expect. I'd waited. I'd held back. I'd been to see his art in Madrid, in Milan, in Amsterdam, in London, in Boston. But I held back from going to Nuremberg because it was such an emotional thing. And I wanted to have, I wanted to have a kind of, everything in my head before I had that experience. And it was a very memorable day because I knocked on the 
door of his house, which is now a museum. And amazingly, it survived the war. Um, it's one of the few houses in Nuremberg that survived. The, the citizens draped it in, in wet cloths and towels to stop it from burning in the firestorm. So it's, it's it, like Jerry himself, his house is a remarkable survivor, but it's, it's, it's a kind of shell, really. And I knocked on the door <laughs> and I said to the man who opened it, because the, it wasn't open yet, it was opening at 10 o'clock, it was just before 10 o'clock, I said, it's his birthday. <laughs> I, I, I kind of expected them to let me in free, but they didn't. But I ran in that house and I ran upstairs because it's a four-storey four house and I ran up to the top because I knew that's where his observatory was. And Jura was intensely interested in scientific discovery. His father had made astronomical instruments. Um, and I knew that's where Jura had his telescope and where he, he looked out at the stars. And he saw in the stars new images, new images of the future. Almost as though he was seeing the black hole. One of his most cryptic paintings is a tiny painting, no bigger than a paperback book, of an exploding comet in the in the in the night sky, surrounded by billowing clouds. This red and yellow thunder flash in the sky. It's almost as though he's looking back at the Big Bang, as though he's looking at creation itself. And I went up to the top of that building, expecting to find Dura there painting that. <laughs> But of course he wasn't there. And I was disappointed. So I went to his cemetery, his graveyard, where he's buried. But I discovered that actually they moved his bones. They actually lost his bones in the 16th century, the late 16th century. So Jura isn't even there either. And the town itself is a kind of reconstruction of what it was. It's a medieval, it's almost like a Disneyland. Away, it's very beautifully done, but uh, uh, a lot of what you see is reconstruction. So I was just trying to work out what is Jura, where is Jura, uh, and I realised as I took the train from Nuremberg to Munich and went to the Alt Pinakothek and walked into an empty gallery. I was allowed into the museum uh, before other uh, public, uh, the public were allowed in, and I stood there in front of that portrait of him as Christ. And it was like standing next to a nuclear reactor. Uh, right. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't turn my back on him. I imagined, actually, as I turned my back, he'd be making sort of bunny fingers over my head as I took my self-portrait, my selfie. My, only, my modern way of doing a juror was a selfie. But here's a selfie which is beyond all others. He also made his own pigments and on the uh, I mean the man has so many devices and and talents it's 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 uh, it's an amazement I mean yeah he made he, he made the color ultramarine from lapis lazuli tell us about that he's almost alchemical he's almost a magician so lapis lazuli and the ultramarine, which is made from it, this is more valuable than gold. So he's painting in material which is precious itself. Um, and he's using the natural world ground up, you know, animal blood like cochineal, also uh, ebony wood ground up for black. He's actually reprocessing the distilled images of the natural world turning them back into elemental colour 
and then creating images of the natural world. So in one of his really remarkable images, he goes out somewhere in a field beyond the city limits of Nuremberg and together, probably with him, his manservant, digs up a clod of earth. And he brings this clod of earth back into a studio, plonks it on a table and paints it in watercolour. And it's dandelions, it's weeds, it's, it's just an arbitrary section of the earth. It's almost a kind of microcosm of the world itself. And he paints it in a kind of cross-section, as though it's on a microscope slide. He even paints the roots and the dirt. No one painted dirt before Dürer. Why would they? Why would they? And what he created there, it's called the Large Turf, and I was able to see it in the Albertina Museum in Vienna, along with the painting the hair. These are incredibly fragile images. They only show them once every 10 years. They never leave the Albertina now, if they can help it. They're very fragile. When they were taken out of the archive, for my benefit, and placed on a shelf it was almost as the hair was scrabbling around in the box to get out and as though the <laughs> dandelions you know one breath yeah. from me and the yeah. dandelions would disperse into yeah. the air do you want to say something about dogs oh. i love i love the dogs in yeah. in in endures yeah. paintings and and, and drawings yeah. he loved dogs it's so clear i don't think anyone has ever drawn dogs with such personhood such no. charm, yeah. sensitivity, um, uh, pathos. You know, there's one drawing he does, which is a silver point, which is a very difficult technical drawing. He's drawing in clay with actually a silver nib, which is leaving traces of silver in the, in the clay ground that he's drawing on. It's actually then develops almost like a medieval photograph. And he draws this dog crouching, with these doleful eyes, you know, the way the dog looks at you as if, you know, it's the saddest thing in the world, but they will be made happy by the merest gesture from you, you know. <laughs> and this dog, to me, sums up everything that's human about this man. He's a very human man. We see his joys, his, his terrors, his ecstasies, his trials, his tribulations. We see them in the way he, he he's very... All great artists are naive. They are children. You know, they are looking at the world through a, uh, undeveloped eyes in many ways, and eyes that try not to be cynical, that, that, that try to see the world in, uh, uh, in the way you see it as a child. I, I often think that he's drawing these images almost like as a child, from, from a child's view, sort of physically down below, looking up at this. So when he looks at dogs, we look at their eyes. We look at their paws, the tufts on their ears. Um, they are, all, and, and they are, they're emblems of melancholy sometimes. They are emblems of companionship. In those three great engravings I talked about of St. Jerome, The Night, the Death and the Devil, and Melancholia One, there is a dog in every one of those images, either, either scrabbling along at their feet of the brave night as he goes through the valley of darkness or sitting at the feet of a of a sort of ungendered angel in in melancholia one uh, one of the most cryptic images ever created in art 
or dozing happily at the feet of St. Jerome in his cosy little cell where he's surrounded by the, the comforts of old age. Um, the dog is there. The dog bears witness. The dog is almost Jura himself bearing witness. It's almost there. Those dogs are like self-portraits of, of Jura himself. Well, I want, to, I want to thank you, Philip, for this book. I mean, I, I think that anybody who can read it will also thank you. I mean, because you're looking at, at Durer, you're seeing in Durer is, is opening other people's minds and imaginations to the greatness of Durer. And it, it's a... A wonderful book. So thank you, Philip Hoare, for speaking with us today about your new book, Albert and the Whale, Albrecht Durer and How Art Imagines Our World. Thank you so much, Lewis. And that was the most elegant interrogation. Uh, I really appreciate it. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.